0: with Ash Orlach.
1: Hi guys, welcome to the Symposium. Welcome back to the film series. Um, just before we start, I'd like to just jog in memory and say that we've uh, got onto Spotify. So if you look at the link in our Insta bio, you'll find our Spotify account. And yeah, we encourage you to give it a follow um, in the Spotify account and elsewhere as well as on Anchor. You'll find the link to our YouTube account, and yeah, if you if you like our content, please do subscribe to that as well. Um, yeah, and we'll we'll uh, enjoy having you, and yeah, we'll try and keep churning it out. So today, I'm happy again to be joined by James and Jay, and also my friend Gorav. So yeah, Gorav, you've not been on before. Would you like to introduce yourself?
0: Uh, yeah, sure. So I'm a uh, I'm probably not as patrician posting as Jay or James. My box <laughs> is is relatively new. I've only got. Probably about 20 or 30 films logged, but I've, I've been watching films a lot longer than that. So I'm, I'm, you know, you can maybe put me at 70% the level of, of Jay and James, maybe. Okay. <laughs> that enough. might be an exaggeration, to be have honest. Have you watched,
1: uh, I mean, t- today um, we'll be comparing The Big Lebowski with Inherent Vice. Um, but before we jump into that comparison, Gorav, I mean, I, have you watched anything recently? That are interested you for the right or the wrong reasons that you just like to talk about.
0: Uh, well, I, I guess recently I've just been watching pretty much every Kubrick film in in rough order, just from kind of beginning to end. Mm. And uh, yeah, I, I think I the probably the most recent one I've watched was Eyes Wide Shut, and that was definitely a very creepy and unnerving experience, and probably I think Kubrick's scariest film that I I did feel a bit. Odd after watching. Oh, yeah, so were you, you it. found it
1: more scary than the, maybe the conventional horror film, like *The Oh, Shining. far,
0: far more. *The Shining* is is not scary at all. It's okay. excellent film, but I don't find it scary in the way Fair that *Eyes Wide Shut* is.
1: Okay, now that's, that's quite interesting. I mean, James or Jay, do you have anything to add specifically about *Eyes
2: Wide Shut*? I, I mean, I'm gonna. I've always said it's Kubrick's scariest film. I think. I also think to an extent Eyes Wide Shut's probably his most fascinating film. It's the one I think that benefits benefits the most from Rewatches. I think there's so much there, there's so much to unpack. There's kind of, you know, all these I don't really want to go into it, but there's all these conspiracy theories, which I think if you watch the film and you you know you've paid attention to the news in the past week, you can kind of understand <laughs> where they're all coming from. Yeah. Um there's like some weird, mysterious stuff. There's, you know. Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise I think it's a really interesting film
1: yeah I, I mean um Jay I mean or, or James actually um you know quite a lot about the kind of production I mean Jay you spoke to me in detail about it was quite an, a long extensive production I mean, could you talk a bit
3: about that is it the longest in history
0: uh, it's something like that isn't it it is it might it be it's, a four, it's, history, it's 400 yeah. days it's the longest running shoot ever why in did history. it take so long because <laughs> Nicole, Nicole Kidman speaks so slowly it's, it's it's fucking Kubrick that's why <laughs> <laughs> the story goes
3: kill. yeah the story goes he hate he ate Tom Cruise and decided to torture him as much <laughs> oh uh,
0: yeah no Nicole Kidman it, it probably Nicole Kidman talking at like a fucking snail pace probably didn't didn't add yeah didn't add to the pacing oh didn't add to the filming schedule
1: yeah, that, that's interesting. I mean, if you're watching, so
0: would any of
1: the other Kubrick films stand out to you, Gora? I mean, last week we had uh, Jay's Hot Takes about 2001. <laughs> I don't really want to, I don't really want to delve, delve into that. Oh, okay, um, well, but, I'll, but, I'll keep it brief. But, but but any of the other ones that that really stood out to you?
0: Yeah, um, I, Or well, other than 2001, I really enjoyed Doctor Strangelove. I think that's probably, yeah. probably one of my favourite Kubricks no, that I, I, really I entirely stood out agree. to me. Yeah. And uh, despite you know being one of his oldest films and very Cold War nuclear warfare focused, it still you know, stands up excellently today. I, I would by no means call myself a political historical expert in these time periods, but yeah, I still beautifully engaged, understanding everything, understanding the intricacies going on, and probably Full Metal Jacket as well, which I think gets a lot of unnecessary flack in the in the general public opinion, which I think it's, it's a lot better than than what I thought it was going to be from what I read.
1: What what kind of flack have you read?
0: Well, you know, just just the standard stuff where the people only really remember the first half, which is obviously a a very intense, you know, boot camp experience. And then the second half is very designed to be just kind of stupid. And they're just running around like headless chickens and it, Mm. it loses a lot of focus. And in comparison, people, I can kind of see people losing interest in the second half, particularly and on on the immediate surface they don't seem particularly linked like really at all I don't really agree with that but yeah
3: I mean
1: James do you have anything to
3: add yeah I mean I think it's good I I, I think it was one of the first Kubrick films I saw I've not seen it in a good few years now but um I never even realized people didn't think the second half was as good until no, like, relatively not. recently but it turns out it's a big opinion I oh think- yeah um the preponderance of other highly rated war films specifically apocalypse now relate uh, results in people you know kind of dunking on it because they see it as like an inferior vietnam film <laughs> to apocalypse now if you get me as opposed to it being a bad film mm. um but yeah i mean you know i i always love that film and i always love the story that they just went to an abandoned power plant and just blew it the fuck up <laughs> that's uh, of um <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean I mean but Gorav, I mean to come back to Kubrick, I mean what is it about him that that made you want to do a kind of a marathon of his films?
0: Uh I, I well obviously he's revered as one of the the you know, greatest most famous influential filmmakers of all time and I have seen uh a few of his films before. I've seen The Shining before, I've seen Clockwork Orange before, but that, that's yeah. really about it. So I kind of wanted to see pretty much all of them and really Mm. and really see you know how much of this is true how much of it lives up holds up and uh and, and yeah just enjoy that experience
1: mm.
0: i mean i'm i'm almost
1: slightly similarly I'm, I'm kind of undergoing a mini paul thomas anderson marathon at the moment i rewatched um uh, there'll be blood the other week and watched the master la- uh, last week and uh, today and obviously for today i watched inherent vice so um going on a kind of mini marathon and i'm, I'm really enjoying um, a lot of his work i mean Jay, do you want to talk a bit about Kubrick and perhaps what kind of makes him still so attractive just for, for even not even, you know, proficient um, film fans, but even more generally? Like, what is it
2: about his, his filmography that really stands out to people? See, for me, I think one of the things that Kubrick does possibly, I, I probably want to say he actually does it better than any other director, is he's got a filmography where there are no two films which are the same. You've got, and he kind of, he's got kind of an iconic film in pretty much every major genre. You've got Barry Lyndon for period drama. You've got Doctor Strangelove for comedy. That's for Yeah, 2001 for sci-fi. A full mass Jacket of the War film. I think, so I think a lot of people, even if you're just a film fan, I think you will have come across one of his films just at some point without even necessarily realising it's Kubrick. Mm. um i think his films they're all very well made they all did stuff that i i think there's quite a lot of innovation going on in his films and there's things that kind of have influenced directors from today um i think or i do think as much as i'm maybe the biggest fan of it i do think a lot of his influence does come down to 2001 space odyssey because mm. i think it was kind of spielberg he said it, that it was kind of his generation's big bang and i think that kind of it's whether you like or dislike 2001 I don't think you can deny that it's an influential film and I think Mm. it's the fact that he went from that and still continued to make throughout his entire career interesting very top quality films that kind of made him synonymous with kind of quality cinema. Mm.
1: No I think that's all fair so I guess I think we should roughly then just move on to the kind of main comparison in today's pod which is as you said earlier comparing The Big Lebowski from the Coen brothers with Weiss from Paul Thomas Anderson um, so, James, despite you seeing, I think, 1,600 or 1,700 films, you had yet to see The Big Lebowski until recently. <laughs> so, well, actually... <laughs> so, so even, even in isolation, ignoring the comparison for the moment, what did you think of it?
3: Yeah, I mean, so, well, actually, uh, I, I kind of thought to myself, I thought to myself for a few years now, I think I did see this movie years back, and... Uh, and having watched it again, I can confirm I had seen it. It's just that it basically vanished from my memory. Um, I thought, you know, I laughed out loud a lot. I don't usually laugh out loud a lot on my own. But overall, I thought the film was pretty, um, it was very Reddit. You know, there was a lot of kind of insufferable bro moments in the movie. And I was just like, this is like a kind of a, you know, like a relatively stupid 20-year-old at a no-name Midwestern university who thinks he's like the shit. This is his favorite movie. But were
1: you there? Were you there for the Reddit content, James? That's the question.
3: I, I was not there for the Reddit content, but I thought the jokes were very funny. Like wow. I laughed a lot. I was like, this, this, this is good. Um, but overall, yeah, I mean, I thought that the film was like it took me forever to work out the damn political message of the film. The film <laughs> was so like the film was so overt about a political message. Like every ten seconds, it was like, yo, Kuwait. And I'm like, okay, like, where the fuck does this fit in? And then I think, like, maybe when I was sleeping, my brain managed to process it. And I think what they were trying to do is they were trying to remake the long goodbye, and then they were trying to say, like, oh, you know, the disillusionment that in general society was feeling in the late 70s is similar to 90s nihilism, which I think is a really, like, really lazy comparison and sort of dubious at best. But I just, I'm so confused as to why the movie was so keen on trying to set up Kuwait as, like, the generations of <laughs> Vietnam. Like, since when was Kuwait anything like Vietnam? Um, I mean, anyway, yeah. whatever.
1: I mean, for those, just briefly, for those who haven't heard of the longer bio, i am yet to see it, could you just give a brief explanation about that film?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's a Robert Altman film from 1970. 1970- Eight, I'm gonna say date uh, date's probably wrong. Um, 1973. Uh, 1973.
1: 1973.
3: Oh, that's an even more perfect date. Anyway, yeah, basically it, it links. It links really well into our discussion today because it's about the same thing that Inherent Vice is about, mm. which is that an era ended mm. in the 60s. The modern American authoritarian state was founded, and then uh, Robert Altman made an adaptation of a Philip Marlowe um, film. You know, uh, people were expecting a big detective. Woo, shoot him up. But the film's just a really depressive, uh, kind of like melancholic, you know, aimless, shaggy dog kind of story, which is more mourning. Mourning of the 60s and sort of um, afraid of uh, an authoritarian future Mm -hmm. more than, you know, shooty, shooty, bang, bang. Woo. Yeah. But it was very, you know, very influential part of the new Hollywood movement, uh, kind of a major auteur voice in mainstream cinema sort of emerging into multiplex theaters um and a lot of people i think have cited it since as, as a major influence obviously the Le- big lebowski is like pretty much like on the nose <laughs> uh trying to be it uh, you've got Inherent Vice, got under the silver lake malol drive takes bits from it you know
1: hmm. well that does lead nicely into our discussion so um but before we get into it just jay i mean i wondered what you'd like to say about lebowski because i know uh similarly to me it's it's one of your favorite films you really enjoy watching it um so yeah what are your overall thoughts on the
2: film yeah so i let's say i last watched for argument's sake the big lebowski say three years ago um and i watched it again obviously i found it it's still it's for me i agree with james completely it's a, it's a complete laugh out loud comedy it's very funny some of the jokes are fantastic. I think every time I watch it, I notice new jokes come in. Um, I can kind of see where James is coming from on some of the kind of political messages, maybe landing a bit flat, but I, I don't necessarily care that much either. Yeah. Because um, I think ultimately the film is, to me, it's just a complete joy to watch. I love all the kind of weird dream scenes. Um I love kind of, I mean, this is a criticism Mark Kamo does of the film. He kind of says quite openly. He thinks it's just a collection of scenes strung together rather than a coherent film with anything really to say. Um, and I think maybe on this viewing more than ever, I could kind of see where he's coming from on that. But again, it's it sounds weird. It's, it's almost like a, a bit of shit criticism on my part. But it's one of those films I just thoroughly feel kind of this sense of joy when I watch it. Um hmm. I is, maybe, can I
1: can I just ask you questions? So is 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 that kind of uh, perception that it's just a load of scenes strung together? Could that have been a conscious choice uh, by the filmmakers in perhaps a statement about nihilism? Because that's obviously quite a constant theme in the film.
2: I don't know. I never really saw it as. A, I think to me, I think almost kind of the plot of the film is almost irrelevant i would say you Mm. know there's this long complex story about a rug mostly i think i think the idea of the film is i don't even necessarily think it's about nihilism i think i think it's
3: anti-nihilism if anything yeah yeah yeah,
2: i agree i think think it's about the dude and about the dude's kind of way of life and his his kind of attitude to life and Mm. how that's kind of interacts with all these things that are going on
3: Mm.
2: i mean there is definitely one thing i've noticed again i don't Necessarily, think it gives it kind of this genius insight, but I do think there is this element of, you know, every single character in this film is in some way, shape, or form a kind of a cinematic trope or a form of stereotype. Yes. Um. I, but I think I mean, to me, I think that mostly just gives it its comedic effect. I think most notably through water. I mean, the guy he's a very funny character. There's like brilliant scenes where he go like one of my favorite scenes where he goes. Uh, there's like this pacifist and you've got Walter pulling out a gun on him, um, <laughs> comparing bowling to Vietnam. It's it's very funny.
1: Yeah. But
2: I don't necessarily watch it and think, oh, my God, this is mind-blowing. But, again, I don't think every film needs to be mind-blowing. I think you can do the trick and just – you can be an entertaining film and do that well. And I think Nabalski does do it well.
0: Mm. Gorav, Yeah, I think I agree a lot with James on this point, though I wouldn't say – uh, so I, I've seen it once before I think a couple years ago three or four and if you asked me back then I would have said sort of like what James uh, said echoing you know I would have thought it was a masterpiece like a five star you know I loved it it, w- it was great Re- re-watching it now again I still very much enjoy it and I agree a lot with Jay saying I noticed a lot more jokes like I definitely missed a lot before like a lot of the a lot of the Kuwait stuff and the war stuff just kind of went right over my head the first time I watched it yeah but uh, I think I I don't love it as much as I thought I loved it from back then. If that yeah. makes sense. No, but it's still nice. it's still definitely it's still definitely a great film. It's very enjoyable. You know, it's a hilarious film. I think it's a lot more it's a lot more straightforward than people give it credit for in terms of the, the mm. plot. Like, um, I I understandably the plot is very designed to be convoluted and not make sense, but it does you know, you can logically follow what's going on pretty pretty clearly throughout the film. Like, it's not difficult in that regard. It's just, it's sort of purposefully confusing in in that way. And uh, I think the other point I was going to say was, in terms of the political message of the film, I always thought it was more about just the Coen brothers trying to exclaim about the dude's way of life. And I thought the intro was very telling about that when they describe the dude as you know he is the man for the time and the city like he is the guy that embodies just this lazy 1990s like la do nothing just vibe just live and all this shit's happening on around him This wars going on he, he doesn't care yeah and that's yeah i think it's just it's just a very enjoyable kind of relaxing film to watch
1: um so james you touched on it briefly with your um kind of comments about the changing of the kind of uh 60s era into American authoritarianism and um, how that links to Inherent Vice so if you could just start us off with the comparison or even just what you think about Inherent Vice as a standalone film either one
3: yeah I mean I really like I you know there my there's a place in my heart for Inherent Vice like years before the film came out I was obsessed with the book and then the film is just like a wonderful adaptation of the book like the dialogue is just lifted straight um I mean I you know it does what it wants to do incredibly well and what it wants to do is it wants to um, it's almost like what we were talking about last week when we talked about sunset and we talked about sort of traditional or modern approaches to history yeah where you know where instead of it does name check Manson a couple of times but instead of just being like hey look there was an era of free peace and love and X, Y, and Z occurred, and now that no longer happens, it sort of plunges us into an, an empirical experience showing what it is like to be part of such a fundamental transformation. And what you see is you see these two characters who appear on the surface to be very different, which is this detective, Larry Sportello, and this police mm-hmm. officer, uh, Bigfoot Bjornsson, Thomas Pinchon, has a great penchant for naming characters. Hmm. but they are you know in many ways we've come to we come to realize over the course of the film they're actually you know they're the same they're very similar they're the same person Hmm. they're both actors in this sort of hierarchical system whereby information is fed backwards and forwards um across you know police lines private detectives uh all the way down to like You know, the the lowest community to the highest community, there's this information sharing, there's an ecosystem which works and which has been in place. And what we see is that other forces, which are never properly defined, um, kind of are sweeping in and breaking apart this ecosystem and everything's collapsing in on itself. Um, And it's about, you know, it's about that sea change, about a change uh, in American politics, which is obviously has been formative for, you know, history since the 1970s.
2: Mm. Um, Jay, what, do you have anything to add? Yeah, um, so I've not obviously read Inherent Advice. I'm about 400 pages into Gravity's Rainbow, which is also by Thomas Pynchon. Um, I've seen this one before. I've seen this one probably about four times now. But I think one of the things I've got to say is in terms of it being an adaptation, when you kind of read Gravity's Rainbow, um, one of the criticisms, it's a kind of a criticism, but I think it worked brilliantly, is Pynchon's style is almost that he strings these words together. They all make sense on their own and all these sentences make make sense together. Then you read it and you just don't know what the hell is going on and you're so disoriented and and there's like random narrative threads and it feels like not only does he take the dialogue but he seems to take inspiration from that kind of style of writing into the way he actually directs the film, into the way he edits it, into kind of Johnny Greenwood's score. I think It's almost like every single element in this film is designed to just confuse the absolute shit out of you as an audience. (laughs) And it does it really, really... No, it it does. It takes a couple of viewings to fully appreciate it. But, for example, there's... One of the the things I noticed this time was there's the narrator character who there's a scene where she's talking and it cuts and she's just not there anymore. And there's another scene where he's talking with um, Balencio del Toro and they'll cut and they're just continuing the conversation exactly as it was but just in a completely different place um as if kind of there's not been any change but suddenly they've just moved within you know the space of cut of a cut of a frame um so I definitely think there's kind of a lot going on where poor Thomas Anderson's using every single filmmaking device possible to just disorientate and invoke this kind of sense of paranoia and confusion and this kind of haze that kind of
1: clouds the whole film do you think that that kind of disorientator although those devices and the disorientating effects, are used to illustrate the changes that James spoke about briefly, societal changes which are taking everyone by surprise and disorientating people due to the speed of change? I mean, it has actually some weird echoes to kind of um, the ideas of people being left behind in kind of the 21st century by globalization, just yeah, um, just the kind of a disorientating nature of the world changing around you while you're kind of sitting there in the same. It, it just continuing your life in the same vein. I think, I think this, the scene change between uh, where working Phoenix and Belizio del Toro are having that conversation is is a perfect example of that, where they're having their conversation, their life is continuing as normal, but the world around them, i.e. their scenery, their location has completely changed and they seem slightly oblivious to that. Yet, yeah. yet they can't be oblivious to it because they must have been involved in the movement to move to the new place. So, exactly. So, so, so it all seems you know to be linking quite beautifully in that respect I mean Gora, what 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 are your thoughts on inherent vibes
0: um well I think I'm the only one here who's probably a lot less positive on it than than all than all you guys I've, I've no. only seen it once as that at mm-hmm. that just that one time yesterday and I, I pretty much spent the majority of the film just hopelessly lost in the <laughs> absolute mess of a plot whatever the whatever was going on you know yeah, yeah. I don't know I was completely lost in it but um yeah, it was all after the film and I kind of I kind of read some of the criticisms and saw some of the themes that was kind of uh, on display in the film that you guys have touched on and I could kind of, you know, retroactively in my mind I could fit it in and I could see like okay, like this this is going to this, this is going to this, but I I, I would be lying if I said I watched the film and finished it and I was like, yeah, that was like really amazing. It is definitely I definitely enjoyed it as a first time watch and I think I particularly enjoyed the first third or first half of the movie when Doc's kind of going around and like every scene is getting a new client and it's just adding and adding and adding to the same story, but it's just getting completely messed up. And he's, he's basically lying to everyone about what he knows and what they know. <laughs> and he's just scribbling like utter bullshit in his notepad. Like I really enjoyed I really enjoyed that in the film. But then um, I think that uh, comparing it to The Big Lebowski a bit, I think the difference is, is that when The Big Lebowski confuses you with its plot um it's it's the the plot isn't that isn't that much of a focus in the film in terms of how it confuses you whereas in inherent vice the film is overtly and specifically deeply focused on the plot and and in in that way it's confusing you which is i I think is slightly different i think that that definitely tripped me up a lot during the film
1: i mean james if you would like to perhaps then dive into the comparison more deeply and perhaps build on what have said there about the disorientating effects of both the films and perhaps um, the fact that Inherent Vice, was, Inherent Vice is, is designed to do that.
3: Inherent Vice is... I mean, Pinchon uh, is basically known for paranoia. Like, that's his thing. Yeah. Um, and obviously one of the most... You know, one of the key ways to get that is, is by the confusing plot. In actual fact, the plot does actually make sense. It does... Try crack i think almost as much as the big Lebowski, although it yeah. might take another another viewing to confirm it mm. um but also i think you know a confusing plot in both cases in both of the big Lebowski and um in her advice is basically serving to tell you that the plot doesn't matter and i think in some total although in her advice is also very funny and very zany and has these themes mm. the key you know emotion after it is it's just an incredibly sad film i mean it's just like it's like pure melancholy. It's like, uh, from our perspective of, of people in their twenties, it's like mourning for something that you never even had to begin with. Mm. It's, it's just like, it's, you know, especially the last third of the film is a real, people always say, yeah, i love to watch this movie when I'm stoned. Like it's a real bummer. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it's really not a happy movie at all. Mm. Um, whereas I think maybe the big Lebowski is a little more hopeful. Mm, um, yeah.
2: Jay. Okay. Yeah, I just actually wanted to add in terms of the plot. Um, there's this point in the film, let's say halfway through, for argument's sake, it might be before the halfway, it might be after, but there's a point where Doc's got board, and he's trying to put the plot together. <laughs> yeah, and he's got all these like complex maps. And he's just kind of staring at, it, thinking, "What the fuck is going on here?" Yeah, and for me, that's almost in that scene alone. It's kind of saying, "Yeah, don't worry, no one understands what the fuck is happening." Yes, you kind of i think mean, joaquin phoenix does it funny me where just throughout the whole film he just looks confused and he's just staring and he makes i also think there's this kind of one thing i really like about the film is there's these a lot of moments where there's kind of this delayed silence but in that delayed silence it's actually just very funny because joaquin phoenix is just making these eyes as if to say what the hell is happening what's going on it's i think it does kind of convey the you shouldn't really worry too much about trying to understand, or you should just kind of enjoy being lost in what the hell I, whatever the hell is going on. Mm. Um, whereas I think, I think if we're going to compare them, I think the key difference for me is that if we're talking about The Big Lebowski, I don't necessarily think it matters about the plot, as kind of Gaurav was saying. You know, you don't watch it thinking, oh my God, I really want to know what's going on with Bunny. Like I didn't really care <laughs> that much, but... I think, and you can kind of brush it aside and just enjoy the scenes, whereas I think in Inherent Vice, you're almost meant to be frustrated and almost meant to kind of be completely caught up in this ridiculously complex web. And I think it kind of actually, they use it not as kind of, you know, just the plot being confusing for the sake of being confusing, but actually to do it to create this sense of paranoia and like, you know, this kind of haze that the film has. Hmm.
0: Uh, Cora? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I agree with quite a lot of the points uh, Jay was saying there. And also when James said it's a very, it is very melancholy film, it's most definitely true. And I think that probably serves to a lot of the point why probably people more prefer Big Lebowski because it is just much hmm. more of a, much more of a laugh out loud, upbeat movie versus this, consistently melancholy like kind of down you know this is dying kind of vibe going on in, in inherent vice and I, I think in in terms of just pta as pta being pta that the technical aspects of of this film are, are like they're phenomenal really like all the, all the sequences are shot beautifully and there's just some lovely there's just some lovely framing and there's the, when he's using all these different long lenses when the and short lenses and shit it, it just looks really cool and a lot of the lighting, I think, is, is very, it's a lot more subtle than I was expecting. But mm. I, I thought it was still, it was used excellently, and I could, I could definitely tell from the film that, um, if, if you think of how you know things as a human being, there's things that you are aware of that you know. There's things that you're aware of that you don't know, and there's things that you don't even know that you don't. That even you don't know. know. Yeah. A lot, the, a lot uh, of inherent. The of secretary. And then sure. a lot of Inherent Vice in me falls into that middle category where I'm watching the film on this first thing and I'm going, yeah, my brain is telling me there's like so much shit I'm just not getting right now. But yeah. I, I, yeah. I don't know it yet,
1: you know? I of not sure if you guys got this, but, but although I was in my mind trying to compare it to The Big Lebowski, the film that really kind of slapped me in the face when I watched Inherent Vice that just came to my mind is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood by Tarantino. Yes, you know? yes. I'm not sure why, but I think my, it might have to do with the kind of um hazy he's making the
3: same point he's literally making the same point about an end of an era it's like he definitely saw the film and then thought "I'm (laughs) i'm gonna make the film
1: yeah and then i um i think that end of the era point is a strong one but also just that the plot devices and the way that the pace of the plot or or kind of it's unconventional um pacing and and almost procession just, just kind of drove a comparison there for me. I mean, I think what I really want to drive on next is the main comparison between the dude and and um, and the and Doc from, from Inherent Vice, in that um, although they both might initially seem to be kind of laid-back figures who are kind of thrown into, um, perhaps, unfortunately, thrown in, into the middle of a kind of mystery, um, the Doc perhaps more willingly than the dude, um, they tend to approach things reasonably differently. And I wondered what you thought of that, Jay, just the the kind of differences in the main protagonists of the film?
2: I think probably the key differences for me, the dude kind of has a very, you know, laissez-faire kind of attitude to life. He doesn't necessarily get that emotionally involved in things. Like he does kind of care. He gets a bit stressed about, you know, what the Germans are going to do to his, you know, his Johnson. (laughs) But other than that, I think the dude's kind of detached from the story, whereas I think Doc is very involved and I think uh, around pretty much exactly the halfway point of the film the story his kind of job which I think maybe he's a bit more relaxed he just kind of takes all these like whatever the fuck's going on notes um and then it becomes very quickly involved into his past relationship with Shasta um and I think there's a lot more kind of of an emotional connection between you know, the film's narrative and doc than there is between the Big Lebowski's narrative and the dude. Yeah. But we see it, I think, what I think is the best, I think it's the best scene of the film, I think it's actually one of the best scenes of Paul Tom Sanderson's career, which is the Ouija board scene where it goes into they're running in the rain with Neil Young playing. Yes. And then it fades in and then suddenly he goes back and then you've got the golden fang, which is now a dentist instead of a ship.
1: Yes. (laughs)
2: Um... (laughs) And I think that scene there really speaks volumes of the whole film. It's Jock Jock kind of going in, looking at this past he's reliving, and now he's going back, seeing that it's been replaced by this new, mysterious, kind of weird corporate entity. Um, Also, just as a side note, I think, just because I wanted to talk about this scene, it's also got what I think is the funniest moment of the film, where he hands hands the um, dentist a Chinese card, Mm. And the guy goes, says, what is this? And he looked at the dentist, the dentist being played by, you know, an American actor, you know, a white American actor. And Doctor's says, well, I figured you being Chinese, you not understand that. <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, I spat my drink out That's that scene. I thought it was so funny. It was just, I don't know, I think, yeah, I think that kind of scene is one of those examples where the film attains this brilliant kind of mix of sadness, comedy, and kind of everything else all at the same time. Would you call Which it a I tragic? Would you call it a tragic comedy in that sense? Yeah, I, I guess so in its kind of own way. I think it almost kind of wants to defy categorization. Whereas I think the Big Lebowski, ultimately, the dude is still—he's a fairly standard kind of—he's a fairly standard kind of stoner comedy, you know, hero. But you know, the Cohen's kind of paint him as this kind of icon and this, this kind of good man thrown into this bad situation. Whereas mm-hmm. I think. The dude there seems to be more nuance about him I think he's a more a complex he's a more complex character certainly he's one that I didn't I wouldn't really say I understand everything that he's going through but I think the dude's kind of characterized by this sadness which sorry um, doc has got this kind of overwhelming sense of sadness to him mm. which the dude doesn't have I think that's kind of the fundamental difference mm. Gora I mean what were
1: your thoughts on, on that on that specific comparison?
0: Yeah, uh, I, I liked a lot of the stuff you said about the dude in the regards. I thought the dude is, for, for better or for worse, there is no change. There is no deep yeah. meaning, and there is no greater sense of what the dude is beyond exactly what you see in the film. You know, he's
3: passive. Completely passive, It
0: Remind me, have you guys seen um, Big Trouble in Little China? Yes. That's one of my favorite films, and in that one, <laughs> yes. Kurt Russell is just, you know, he's irrelevant. Almost entirely, yeah. he does nothing in the film. And I, I kind of get that vibe in The Big Lebowski, where he's just mm-hmm. you know jumping from this to this. He's basically <laughs> serving no purpose. Like other guys around him are doing stuff, and like uh, in, in that regard, you know the the Coen brothers make no, you know they make no effort to provide to present the dude as a deeper guy beyond exactly what they show you he is. And comparing that to Doc, it's it's very different in that Doc. Uh, in my opinion he he has quite a character arc in terms of coming to terms with the end of his era and his his past relationship with Shasta and that kind of culminating throughout the film and he has has a lot deeper character in the sense of a lot of sadness he's feeling and he's just he's he's going through a lot of stuff quite clearly throughout the film
1: Mm, uh, I think that's interesting I mean talk about that um, that kind of comparison I think another interesting comparison that I got while watching Inherent Vice was the interesting score, because I'd watched The Master and, and There'll Be Blood mm. um, recently. And obviously they're very characterised by percussive string work, especially. Perhaps getting slightly more legato when you get into The Master rather than There'll Be Blood. But There'll Be Blood, or perhaps both of them perhaps, in one hand, you know, Daniel playing Plainview's State of Mind and in the other one, Wacky Phoenix's State of Mind in um, The Master. The, the strings specifically there are used to illustrate their... Perhaps very fragile mental states, and their and their 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 existence on the precipice of sanity. Um, and it was interesting how that 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 kind of orchestral score was completely absent in *Inherent Vice*, although it was um, still a poor Thomas Anderson film. Whereas uh, whereas you know he he adopted for maybe slightly more conventional um, sampling of actual songs. Um, and I think that that drove to a completely different kind of message about what the protagonist was going through. That instead of perhaps being on the precipice of absolute insanity or, or mentalism, we ended up with a perhaps wider point about as we've spoken about themes relating to culture and, and the country, which I think is shown well by, by, by the popular music which is used. I mean, James, what are your thoughts on the use of score in um, those two
3: films? I mean, I think uh, what you mean, Inherent Vice. And and The Big Lebowski. And The Big Lebowski. I mean, I think Inherent Vice very nicely balances like the the, the period pieces, which are being sampled from. And then Johnny Greenwood's score, which is a lot more uh, at times menacing, at Mm. times a lot more melancholy. It's a very different tone from, you know, the more upbeat kind of rock songs for the most part, being yeah. used. The uh, Le Big Lebowski, uh, I watched it two nights ago and I can't remember what the score was. So <laughs> that's maybe saying something. I know there was a lot of popular music in it, but um, I don't remember any of it.
1: No, I mean, that's fair enough. I mean, what it, can, you, can you specifically talk about or, or at least engage with the idea of that I mentioned about um, the use of perhaps popular music in Herent Vice as opposed to more percussive orchestral music that's used in, in um,
3: others, other Paul Thomas Anderson films. I mean, it just makes more sense because it's trying to establish a particular, you know, maybe, maybe Boogie Nights has has more popular music. I don't remember. It's been years since I saw it. Yeah, it does.
0: Yeah. It yeah
3: I mean, the fact is that it's, it's trying to establish this film is a time and a place that's what it is and yeah. you can't have that time and a place with johnny greenwood's like almost postmodern score can you yeah. like if you stick the phantom thread soundtrack over the top which is like just pure modernism it's not going to work hmm. um, um so jay jay you had a interesting point on uh, inherent vice in the music
2: yeah i'm actually going back to the scene that i just spoke about the dentist scene it yes. was where the score really stood out to me because it's I, I'm not as technically, you know, knowledgeable in music, but for me, the score kind of started going. Re- it was kind of like this really. It was almost like a piano note. It was like really tense and just kind of slowly building. And I found myself during this scene just feeling kind of this real kind of sense of tension from the music. Um, and it kind of it built because the, obviously the film started getting more and more kind of going into like a darker, more paranoid kind of frenzy. And then they were in this car. Um, on drugs, driving at night, and the score was getting actually really quite menacing if you're like really paying attention to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Johnny does a really good job at kind of using the music to create at once this you know this kind of free kind of drug fueled vibe, and at the same time invoking these ideas of paranoia. Mm. Um, and I think it's very subtle, but I think it is there. And I think it does help to create the overall mood that I spoke about at the start. Um, I do kind of agree with James in terms of I couldn't actually tell you what the score is to The Big Lebowski. I remember, obviously, you've got the kind of the opening bit with the with the tumbleweed. I can remember that. It's kind of a very classic film score. But obviously, I think the use of um, the use of contemporary music stands out and not necessarily because it's, not necessarily because I think, oh, this is genius using music, but I think because it's just it works really well in the sense of the film and it, it kind of brings this great... Um, it kind of helps build the kind of fun tone that the film goes, goes for.
1: Yeah. No, I, I think those are interesting points, especially... Um, I, I like how you linked with James's point perhaps about the kind of mood that was being... or the zeitgeist that was trying to be captured mm. by, by inherent vice and, and then the wider societal points that come from it. Um, I mean, Gaurav, what are your thoughts on the uh, music?
0: Um, I, I'm not even sure if the Big Lebowski actually had a score, of its own, <laughs> as opposed to just. I mean, I rec- I remember the songs, like the pop songs, and that fit the film very well. I, I honestly cannot remember an actual, you know, composed piece of music specifically for the film that was used during mm. it. And uh, uh, like like a lot of what Jay said, that jerk scene, the music definitely did really stand out. I, I think that cast scene is probably. Uh, one of my favourite films in the in the in the film, perhaps other than Josh Berlin deep throating that cursed Magnum <laughs> just mm-hmm. constantly. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, that because that that drug field car scene it does really get very intense and kind of very creepy, and the kind of cops they're all kind of. The way he cuts the camera, they're kind of jumping in and out, and like they're kind of yeah. in different positions around the car. And I'm pretty sure at one point Doc swaps positions with with the girl yeah, in the car, and he that does. just, yeah, and that just like there's no <laughs> transition, they just swap, and he's yeah. suddenly driving. And I'm just like, yeah, what the hell? is <laughs> <laughs> going on? But yeah. yeah, I thought that was really, I thought that was a really excellent sequence, and yeah. a lot of what James said that, you know, this film really is the embodiment of a time and a place this is this is the hippie lifestyle coming to an end and being replaced by more politicized cold controlling capitalism and and the music choice really fits that i particularly mm. really enjoyed during the scene where doc and josh burling go to eat at the chinese japanese restaurant and it's just really <laughs> subtly in the background is sukiyaki playing which is, <laughs> yeah. which is one of my favorite songs it's just really just quietly playing i was like yeah you know this is this is the vibe he's trying to he's trying to yeah. give out with this film that, you know, this is the time just kind of get absorbed in what's going on. Yeah.
1: yeah. I, mean, I to, Sorry to keep linking it back to some of his other films, but I did in, I did spot a link to there'll be blood in the, in the, you know, follow me. If, if this doesn't make sense, do let me know. But, but in the way that the kind of golden fang, which was initially an illegal exploitative business, legitimized itself into the kind of innocuous dentist while mm. perhaps not shedding any of its kind of corporate identity. I think that 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 um, is a theme you could pick up from There'll Be Blood as well, where yeah. the kind of um, risk taking, perhaps exploitative, perhaps not, but but generally quite callous nature of American frontier capitalism mm. became legitimised with Standard Oil um, and, and was kind of overtaken by what was perceived as more acceptable forms of corporate culture, while maintaining substantially most of the kind of exploitative aspects. Um, that characterised its initial forms. And I think those are the points that Paul Thomas Anderson is trying to make, whether you agree with them or not.
3: I mean, mm. uh, J- James, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree. I, I actually... I've seen the film a bunch of times, but last night, maybe it's just because I was thinking about it because we were going to make a podcast. I that, that thought occurred to me as well. Mm. I was like, oh, I can actually see how uh, this is pretty much linked with, with There Will Be Blood. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's more... Y- the, the the more confusing thing is more this emergence of emergence of a new uh, category of player that didn't exist that or at least the argument is mm. that didn't exist before like someone so elite like if you watch uh, the last scene or not the last scene one of the last scenes when he speaks with the um, don't want to spiral anything but he speaks with someone very high up. It's like yeah. the highest up person. Mm-hmm. He tries and uses these, these phrases, like these stock phrases, these conversation starters that he uses with everyone else in the movie, but like they just don't work. And <laughs> all of a sudden, when he's speaking, he just looks like a complete idiot. Mm-hmm. Whereas for the rest of the film, you know, I mean, obviously he well, he's not an idiot. That's you know, he's he's actually quite smart. But for the rest of the film, that's like how you converse. And suddenly it's become impossible to converse because this person's like in another league. It's like mm someone untouchable. Hmm. I mean, uh, Uh, Jay, I'm I'm sure you have something to add.
2: Yeah, I think in terms of also, we said this a bit about the golden fang, but I think one of the interesting things is the way what the golden fang is keeps changing throughout the film. Yeah. It starts off, he he hears it and he assumes it's a band Mm. and then it's a boat and then suddenly it's this drug cartel and then we go through a flashback and now it's this dentist um syndicate and somehow these things all link together yeah and i think there's this kind of i think that's kind of it it's this idea it's almost this um kind of stream of consciousness kind of style into so the golden frank kind of fits into the kind of stream and conscious style of the narrative in the sense that it keeps morphing into something else but it still means the same thing throughout the entire film yeah and i do think it's got it's also meaning it's pretty obviously it's whatever it's not necessarily capitalism but it's kind of this 70s era corporatism that has kind of slowly kind of polluting you know the city of los angeles which was once associated at least the doc anyway with this kind of 60s hippie era yeah that he lived in
1: i mean um gaurav um you've seen The will blood as well and i know you're a massive yeah. fan of it do you think paul thomas anderson in those two films is making a nostalgic point um, about the past or is he kind of satirizing what other people say about their past and their misplaced nostalgia well
0: in, in there will be blood i don't think he's he's satirizing anything at all i find it quite you know reasonable that someone like david plainview is going to go to this daniel 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 yeah of course daniel plainview is going to go to this you know more removed part of america and, and suddenly bring this newfound brand of uh colder, more money-focused capitalism that you know, they, they had never seen before. They were just a, re- a religious town mm. by, just by that small church. And I think Inherent Vice is a lot more satirical in that nature. And there's a representation of, uh, I agree with what Jay said, it's not necessarily capitalism, but just this new modernist corporate dominant culture that, that was bringing brought in. I think that's really emphasized in, in The Dentist, in that yeah. when, he, when he turns <clears> that corner... It's just this giant, it, the, the difference between that, you know, the little corner in the shop where he's sitting with Shasta, the convenience store, and then he, that the way that looks is so kind of, it's, it's more of an olden style building. It's got these angled glass planes that you don't really see anymore. Like that's not a style that anyone has. And then he turns the corner and it's just this giant, modern spiral glass metal building structure. Mm. And it's just obscenely huge in comparison. And, and he walks in. And I thought what was really weird is I thought it was a hotel. Yeah. I thought it was some kind of office building, but then it's not. It's just an entire dentist office. And I think mm. that's when it, that's when when I think back at it, that's when it's really going. That's when PTA is going all out in his, you know, this corporate culture is wild. This this giant building, and it's, it's literally just a dentist office. But inside, mm. it's the most weirdest corporate environment ever.
1: <laughs> mm. Okay, so I mean. Um... Yeah, I think it was then pretty clear, guys, which one we like better overall, considering that the comparison pretty much ended up being, pretty much ended up being there will be blood against 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 Inherent Vice, I think, because that might have shown that I think there'll be blood is probably closer in calibre to Inherent Vice than The Big Lebowski is. But yeah, I mean, I wondered whether where you guys placed um, Inherent Vice in Paul Thomas Anderson's filmography, because um, all of you have seen at least three or four of his films. I mean, uh, James, if you'd like to go first.
3: Yeah, I mean, I you know, I have a special attachment to this movie, so it might be my favorite. Um, but maybe The Master, uh, I guess, could be uh, could be an alternative choice. Maybe followed by Phantom Thread. But again, you know, it's Paul Thomas Anderson. I think all of his movies are fantastic, except for uh, what's it, Hard Eight.
0: Yeah, his first one is that the first one, right?
3: Yeah.
0: No, I mean, you know,
1: James, why why is um this? just above for example specifically there'll
3: be blood Why? why do you like those three films more than that one but oh i see i just uh never there will be blood i just never i never vibe with it as much as like other people do i, I think the movie's great but <laughs> i just never saw um the meteoric genius that some people see i'm like yeah. okay yeah great foundational myth of capitalism thanks very much moving on mm-hmm.
1: um jay where do you place
3: this film inherent vice so, I'd say, so I've
2: seen all his films, I'd probably put it in the top, I'd probably put it top four, top five. Um, I'm one of those people, I think he's actually just made a bunch of fantastic films. I think his run from There'll Be Blood all the way through to Phantom Thread is pretty much bulletproof. Um, hmm. But I would say maybe of those four, Inherent Vice ranks fourth, but I still think it's a fantastic film. Yeah. I prefer it to like his 90s works, Boogie like Nights and Magnolia, which I think they're both fantastic films. But I think in her advice, just that bit more interesting and it's a bit more kind of unique and less kind of copycat. He's at this point, he's in his career, he's got his own style and he's a bit more self-assured. And I think it really comes off in this film that, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson, he knows what he's fucking doing at this point. Before I bring Gore Ivan, I'd just like to ask Jay. I mean, you
1: mentioned because, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson's work better than I do. Um, you mentioned that he has consistent kind of father-son themes in his film but i did not actually spot in his films but i didn't actually spot that very much in inherent vice
2: no i think yeah i was thinking about this yesterday i think the closest parallel i see is uh bigfoot and doc but it, it's very loose it's a very loose thread they kind yeah. of none of that none of that I of more, either
0: i thought they were mm. more brother yeah more brotherly yeah. Than, than father yeah sonly. it's kind of yeah.
2: got it's kind of got the, the whole like kind of you know um different side of the same coin idea yes yeah
0: um
2: and I think in a way not to spoil it because I know Gorov hasn't seen the master but for me the final scene with Doc and Bigfoot is almost like a weird inversion of the master
3: yeah, yeah I get that
2: um it's very similar in tone it's very funny but it's also kind of sad um yeah it's I think it's one of his I do think it's one of his better films I think it's up there with the best films of the decade
1: i mean i i'd say it's the difference of kind of funny in the inherent vice is funny because it's like it makes you laugh but but then the master without spoiling anything is funny because it's almost ridiculously ludicrous and mm. just almost pathetic and or bathetic rather um and and it's just kind of that that's it makes you laugh in an almost slightly darker way um but yeah Gaurav, what what are your thoughts on um where where um, inherent vice fits into so, Thomas Anderson's discussion. Uh, I've only on.
0: seen I've only seen There Will Be Blood, uh, Boogie Nights, and Inherent Vice, and I think There Will Be Blood I've seen it quite a few times. One time in, in 70 millimeter print at the Prince Ooh, Charles Theatre, and it nice. is it is just definitely one of my favourite films of all time. I very much enjoy it. Uh, I would rank that as my favourite PTA, and then Boogie Nights and Inherent Vice kind of I, I haven't seen Boogie Nights in a long time, so I don't know where i'd rank in that regard but i definitely enjoyed that film a lot as well and i, I can see a level, a lot of what jay said in that inherent vice is a lot more of his kind of you know his it's more of his own personal desires and style versus boogie nights and i, hmm. I can see that i can see over rewatches and time how that ranking evolves and changes
1: hmm. well i mean thank you guys i mean i really enjoyed that i thought that was a really fruitful comparison um and I really enjoyed as well the, the bit at the start where we were able to spoke more more generally about Kubrick. Um, I hope that you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. Um, just to remind you that um, we now are on Spotify and the link is in our Insta- Instagram bio. And yeah, we're also on YouTube as usual. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Spotify. And yeah, we'll keep churning out the content. Cheers and uh, see you next time on the uh, film episodes from the Symposium. Thanks. <laughs>
0: with Ash Orlach.